0: class on the first six chapters of bhagavad gita given february 2nd 2008 in wellington new zealand namo omish priya krishna prasadi mutu lai bhakti ranjanat swami nichandani namaste sar swachi devi garalani pracharna yuvasi sisani yuvani paskujani sadar namo vande ham shri guru shri tat padakamalam shri guru vaisnavan stachakam she Rupam sagrajatam, sahagana, rabbinatam, litam, stam, sajiva. Sadvaitam sadvadutam, padichina, saitha, Krishna jay, devam, she radha Krishna padam, sahagana, vagita, shri, vishakam, bitam, sutcha. Omnima, Bhagavateva, sudeva Bhagavateva, sudeva Om Omnima, Bhagavateva, Sudevaya ya. Omnima, Bhagavateva, sudeva ya. Omnima, Bhagavateva, So, in the next three days, we are going to study the entire Bhagavad Gita. Ready? Ready? Now, what I would suggest you do is, before the class... Or if you haven't done that after the class. Go through the six chapters that we're studying, at least the verses. So, if you haven't done that in preparation for this class, gone over everything in chapters one through six, then my suggestion is that after this class that you do that. So, Again, I don't, if you can read everything, all the verses and all the purports in one through six, that's lovely. If you don't have time to do that, then at least go through all of the verses in one through six. That's my suggestion. That way you will get a lot more out of this than just listening to me. Okay? Is that right? And I've uh, given you a sheet which is a summary of the whole Bhagavad Gita which should help you as you go through the Gita. And then for tomorrow morning at, uh, at the Temple in Newlands we'll be doing 7 through 12. And then Monday morning here we'll be doing chapters 13 through 18. So again, I suggest the same thing, that either before or after each class. But some people find that if they do their study before the class, it makes it easier, and other people find that if they do their study after the class, it makes it easier. So you, you do whatever is working for you. Uh, if you don't have time even to go through the verses, if you have any recordings of devotees reading the verses, and there's two that I'm aware of, one by Amala Bhakta, another by devotees in South India, uh, then you can just listen to that. So, to listen to one through six will take about an hour and a half. You could listen to that while you're doing, you know, cleaning or cooking or something else, driving. Uh, but I would suggest at least you go through the, the verses. Okay? So, this starts out, Bhagavad Gita starts out in a battlefield. Does everybody know the background to Bhagavad Gita? If you know the background to Bhagavad Gita, nod your head. Okay. If you don't, shake your head. Okay, a few down, so I'll do it very, very briefly. So, of course, Krishna says he comes to... Why does he come? Why does he come? Annihilate the mystery vinashaya svinashaya Vinash means to destroy. And what else? To save the devotees, right? Vritrinaya nam and re-establish religious principles. Dharmasnamasnapanataya. So religious principles, by the way, have to be re-established over and 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 over again. And that's also part of the job of Krishna's devotees. And by the way, that's also part of our job. It's not that Krishna comes 5,000 years ago and then it's done, or he comes 500 years ago and then it's done. The devotees are constantly also doing this. So he's doing this, and at that time, some of the duskritam, just like today, were people in positions of political power. So often, demoniac people want to get positions of political power, And wealth, because then they can do more demoniac things than they could do otherwise. So that was the situation, and Krishna wanted pious persons in charge, just like we also want pious persons in charge. Can you all understand both my accent and my speed? Is is there anybody who's really struggling? Is there anyone who has English as a second language and is really struggling with the combination of my American accent and my New York speed? Hey. If I'm going too fast, please tell me. I've, I've come to realize that even English-speaking audiences may not have English as their first language, and I may be losing them when I go on my very fast American track. So, just like we, wouldn't we love it if the people who are running the governments were righteous people? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Even ordinary persons are looking for somebody who's at least relatively righteous. They don't want a thief and a rogue, right? So Krishna also wants that and therefore he wanted the Pandava brothers to be running the world. Uh, But their cousins headed by Duryodhana had usurped the kingdom. They had taken over the kingdom through various cheating means, which again, does this happen in modern society that people cheat somehow or other and take over a country? Either they do it through some political intrigue or sometimes a military coup. So that had happened, and Krishna wanted there to be a war. And he had tried in so many ways to rectify these people. He had tried to reason with them. He had tried to mediate with them, and now he wanted them gone. So uh, he arranged for this, uh, indirectly, of course, for there to be a very big war and uh, something, something on the scale of you know World War II Now, a difference was that it was taking place on a battlefield. Our modern wars take place within cities (laughs) and the, the civilians are also, and Prabhupada said that's a reaction for democracy, that because people vote in their leaders, the people are also responsible for the decisions of their leaders and therefore the people also have to suffer the effects of war. So that's one of our unintended consequences of democracy that we, we, become, we as citizens become responsible for the decisions of the person that we voted in. Yes. Of course, I don't think we'd really want to have our presidents and prime ministers be autocratic kings either. I mean, because we don't have good leaders, we'd rather have weak leaders. That's the idea of democracy. The whole idea of democracy is not just electing. Democracy is also that there's checks and balances in the government, with the purpose being to weaken the leaders. That's, a, that's the entire purpose of democracy, is to have weak leaders. So why do you want weak leaders? Because they're not very good leaders. That's the, that's the whole idea. Because the monarchies in Europe were exploiting the people, uh, therefore weaken the government. So, of course, when you have a weak government, then you also have more crime, then you also have irreligious principles and so forth, but at least you're not being oppressed by the government. And I think most of us have decided that we'd rather not have an oppressive demoniac government like in the former Soviet Union. We'd rather have that, uh, even if it means that we have more crime and we have more irreligion in society. I think that's the decision of most people at the modern time. But in those days it was different. You had rulers who were both strong and good. And Krishna wanted such a ruler. They were not autocratic rulers, by the way. It wasn't that uh, the, whatever the king said was it and there was no checks and There were also checks and balances. There was also, just like in democracy, at least in America, I'm not sure if it's like this here, but we have the three branches of government. Do you have that here? Legislative branch, judicial branch, and executive branch. You don't have that here? Do you have any kind of Congress or Parliament here? Do you have any lawmaking body? Is, is that lawmaking body separate from your chief executive head? Yes, okay. And you have, you have judges? You have, and they're also separate from your executive department. Okay so same thing. So in the Vedic system of government where was the uh, where was the legislative what was the legislative branch where was the, where were the laws coming from? The yeah, the shastra. Exactly. Did the king make the laws? No. King had to go with, but from shastra. Now there might be specific laws made by the king but they all had to be founded in Shastra, just like... Do you have a constitution in this country? Or no? You do? So just like uh, the laws have to be in accord with the constitution. So the king had to make laws that were in accord with the Shastra. Just like in our International Society for Krishna Consciousness, the GBC are supposed to make laws that are in accord with Shastra and with Prabhupada's instructions. Right? And people can challenge. And they have challenged just like we challenge in the, in the secular government. And we may say, someone may say, this law is unconstitutional. Do you call that here also? Somebody will challenge in the court. So in ISKCON we can also challenge. You can say to your, you know, your telepresident president or your GBC, you know, is this law Shastrik, this rule that you have? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's there, not to just whatever they say, we have to say yes sir, we can say. You know, is this in the Shastra? Now Prabhupada says that, he says that. Whenever someone speaks, you should be able to challenge. Is this in the Shastra? Where is it coming from? And who was the judicial branch in a Vedic society? The judicial branch decides the meaning of, and the application of the laws. Who was that? Mm-hmm. Exactly, the Brahmanas. the Brahmanas. So the king did not have absolute power. The king had a lot more power than our modern presidents and prime ministers, but the king did not have absolute power. The laws had to come from Shastra, and the meaning and the application of the laws were given by the Brahmanas. And although uh, Krishna wanted Yudhishthira to be the emperor of the world, there, was, uh, there were also many, many, many separate kingdoms. So the head of a city in America, we call them a mayor. Do you have a mayor, of Auckland? I'm in Wellington, sir. So. so that person in Vedic times would have been a king just like Kamsa was the king of Mathura. So there were kings for cities, there were kings for small districts, there were kings for what would be states. And then there was an over-emperor. Not always, but often there was an over-emperor. And Krishna wanted Yudhisthira to be that emperor. Now, although there was an emperor, the individual kings had a lot of autonomy in running their own sphere. And the emperor would only interfere if people were doing something irreligious, So if a king was irreligious, then the emperor might come in and conquer that kingdom and give it to a proper ruler. That's what Krishna did with Jarasandar. He conquered Jarasandar and he gave the kingdom to Jarasandar's son. Not that he was interested in taking it over. And what was also interesting about Vedic monarchy is that people pay taxes only to the local ruler. So you're a very small country, and I'm not sure how you do it here. But in America, people have to pay local taxes, state taxes, and federal taxes. So people pay taxes to the overall big government. But the big government is not really able to administer things for the little citizens very effectively, and there's a lot of cheating that goes on. But when people paid invaded society taxes only to the local government. Then the local government took a portion of that and paid it to the emperor. So things were administered very locally. You didn't have some big government, even though Krishna wanted you to be the emperor. It wasn't that the emperor was some big government over the whole world making uh, minute decisions about people in every town, nor were people paying taxes directly to the emperor. But the emperor was overseeing everything and making sure that religious principles were being followed and that all of the other kings were actually righteous. So this is the way Krishna wants the world to be run. and at this time during krishna's appearance you might say well why doesn't he just you know do that just sit back and say okay it'll be because whatever krishna thinks immediately happens so why is there all this drama why is there this war so one reason is that the even demoniac people can get material facility if they play by the rules So Krishna is not partial, and he set up a material universe such that even if you're a demoniac, if you do good activities, you get good results. So if you're charitable, you'll be wealthy, even if you're a demon. Now, if you do the karma to become a king, then even if you're a demon, you'll become a king. So then what to do? Because Krishna doesn't want demons to be king. But some demoniac people do the good karma to become rulers. You wouldn't want Krishna to be unfair, would you? That wouldn't be very nice. Nobody wants a teacher to have a pet student. Unfairly. Nobody likes unfairness. So what does Krishna do? He arranges it that these demoniac kings do something so that he can get rid of them quickly. He arranges, he'll put some great devotee in their family so they'll offend the devotee. You know, so somehow or other, that they'll, they'll break one of his rules. And he puts something in front of them. So this was what was done with Kamsa. Right, Narada wanted, wanted Kamsa out as quickly as possible. So he actually instigated him to perform very heinous sinful activities of killing his nephews, who were all destined to be killed. That was part of their, their plan, actually, to get free of a curse and so forth. But he, he, he actually uh, encouraged Kamsa. Why? Because that way we could get rid of him and still keep all the universal laws intact. You know, you go around killing little babies and you start burning up very quickly all of your credits. You know, so if somebody has, they have a big bank account and because they have a lot of money, they have a lot of power and, and maybe if that person is also demoniac, you want to get rid of their power so what do you do? You trick them into spending their money on something that's a bad investment. Then they become poor. So Krishna does that kind of thing. You know, he, he tricks them some way into getting rid of their pious credits so that they can be deposed. And so that's one reason that Krishna likes things to be fair and when demons do the right thing, then they get to have a position. And the other reason is that Krishna really likes drama and fun. He, he's just not a boring person. I mean, our understanding of God is very, very different than that of most of the religious systems of the world. Do you have the Christians here who give out little tracts, little little pamphlets, and tell you you're going to hell if you don't follow their particular (laughs) take on things? Make sure we're not like that, okay? Please, Mm
1: -hmm. don't
0: do that. but well, some of these little pamphlets I don't know if they have them here but they certainly have them in America it shows God is he's wearing kind of like a business suit and he has no face and he's sitting in a huge throne have you seen that one? do they have that one here too? yeah and the little ant-like people at the bottom and there's a big movie screen that says this is your life on it have you seen that? And God is, you know, people are getting a life review, like people talk about who have near-death experiences, you know, so getting a life review, and then there's this big faceless God and this big, these ant-like people. Heaven, hell, heaven, hell, and that's all he does all day and it's kind of a boring job. You know, I don't think any of us would want to do that job, even if we got paid a lot of money. So our idea of God is not like that. What to speak of thinking that he's just some force and he just thinks, okay, demons be gone, and poof, they're gone. And that's, He likes to have fun, so he's also, what's going on here in the Bhagavad Gita is also Krishna's having fun. Isn't everybody interested in fantastic battle stories? Isn't that one of the things that people are very attracted to in the world? How many movies are out there of fantastic battle stories? since the beginning of movies? A lot? Dramas? Novels? Fiction? Nonfiction? How many people want to hear about battles? So many people, isn't it? And especially if it's a fantastic battle. And there's supernatural weapons and supernatural personalities. Are people attracted to that? Right? Aren't they? Very attracted. Some of the big time movies like Star Wars. Right? never saw that one. I I have read Lord of the Rings, so I know that was also a popular movie, popular book, same thing, great battle between good and evil. So Prabhupada says that Krishna has all the inclinations of a human being, or you could say we have all the inclinations of Krishna, we are created in his image. So the reason that we have that inclination is because that's there in Krishna. So Krishna liked to engineer this really fantastic battle. So here it's all poised. Here is this battle about to take place. And it's, going to, it's taking place for two reasons to make Krishna happy. One is that Krishna really wants good government because he really cares about us. And he really wants us to be taken care of. Uh, just like here... Uh, Devamrita Maharaj wants to make sure that the people leading the ashrams are good people, right? Isn't it? The GBC wanted to make sure that there's good temple presidents and good GBC and good gurus and good sannyasis. They don't want to put people in leadership positions who are going to cause trouble. That makes them happy. So it also makes Krishna happy. It's for Krishna's pleasure if those who are in positions of leadership are good people. And the other reason it's there is to bring Krishna happiness because he wants to have a nice battle. He wants to have fun. So that's why this battle is taking place, for Krishna's happiness. And all these people who are fighting, that's also, they do enjoy fighting. Are there people who enjoy fighting? Do all of us sometimes enjoy fighting also? Yes, I would think so. Don't we? Mm-hmm. You ever sometimes enjoy a good debate with somebody? Mm-hmm. At least? Maybe you don't enjoy, I mean, i never enjoyed punching anybody. Mm-hmm. You ever had any opposition in your life, and you conquered over that opposition and how good it felt? Did you all do that sometime? Mm-hmm. Right? It's fun, isn't it? So all the people on the battle, they were all warriors. So this was also their their enjoyment. Krishna was also facilitating their desire for a good fight. So this is what's happening. And Krishna is the chariot driver of his friend Arjuna, who's one of Yudhisthira's brothers. And they're fighting in a battlefield away from the population. They don't throw bombs at the civilians. And the two sides were lining up, just like you see in the really, really old movies where they're on their horses, right? they all see movies like that. Two sides were on their horses. Charge! You know? And they all put down their lances or whatever. So something like that, except in addition to horses, there were elephants. There were chariots. And people had apparently unsophisticated weapons, but actually they had very, very sophisticated weapons because although their weapons might be carried on an arrow, they had weapons that were more sophisticated than our modern atomic weapons, than our modern nuclear weapons. They had nuclear weapons that could be aimed just at a particular person and wouldn't cause some kind Mm -hmm. of radiation for the whole planet for the next 10,000 years. And almost all of our modern weapons, if not all of them are made out of some sort of fire energy some kind of burning weapons, whereas they had weapons from wind and water and earth and all different elements, not only fire. And they had a very complicated science of how to send and counteract weapons. And many of these warriors were as strong as 10,000 elephants. And there was a man about a hundred years ago in the Guinness Book of World Records, who was as strong as four big horses. You know those great big horses that have the hairy feet. Yeah, that's it, Clydesdales. So there was this guy, I forget his name, but they would tie two horses here and two here, and he'd be like this, and they didn't budge his arms. And he could also push a railroad car up a hill on a train tracks. <coughs> so he was stronger than four Clydesdale horses. And there were warriors on this battle who were as strong as 10,000 elephants. So just imagine how powerful they were. And there were some who could fight with a 1,000 people at a time. Right? So this is the, the scene. The problem, though, is that this is a civil war. It's a war between family members because the bad guys and the good guys are all in the same family, their cousins. And you know they grew up together. Now there were a lot of trouble between these cousins for a long time because the, the bad guys, Duryodhana, et cetera, they were, he was trying to kill his cousins from the time they were quite small. So it's not like they all got along and now all of a sudden there was a problem. I mean, he was demoniac from the word go. Uh, but still, as the battle starts, and Arjuna is going to go out into the, the battle, and he has some, he starts to think that I really don't want a war. I mean, of course, none of us would like to have a war as a way of settling things, would we? It's not a very pretty way to settle things and it has so many dire consequences. So this is how we start off with the Bhagavad Gita. Okay, anybody else want to bring up anything else about history of the Bhagavad Gita? I mean, obviously I haven't touched on anywhere close to everything. It's a long story. Anybody else have something they feel that's really helpful that I have skipped? Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. before he could and
0: it that he couldn't just step and just well he could he could do whatever he wants he but what Krishna wants is to uphold his rules so let's say you're in charge of something like let's say that you, you end up being the main person running this retreat program okay so then you may set some rules for how it works so don't you want to uphold your own rules? What would happen if you say that these are the rules and then whenever it's convenient for you, you break them? What would happen? Nobody would take seriously. Exactly, nobody would take you seriously. Have you ever had authorities like that? Have you ever had an authority like that? Where you never knew what they were going to do? He never knew if they meant anything. And you ever had somebody like that? Maybe a teacher or somebody, boss or somebody in life, who you know, yeah, this is the rules. And then you find out that for so and so, they get something different. You're like, wait a minute. You know, I thought that that was the rule. You know, here you are following the rules, thinking, all right, this is what's going to happen. And then somebody else gets something. Have you ever been in that experience? You know, you're told by a teacher, okay, you've got to do this and this, and you do it, and then you show up for class, and no, you really don't have to do that. <laughs> I did all that for nothing? You know, it's 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 very disturbing, the relationship that's hindered. I, sometimes, sometimes Krishna violates his rules. But even when Krishna violates his rules, it's usually within the set of a higher rule. I mean, there are sometimes judges or leaders who pardon criminals but they don't usually just pardon criminals whimsically it's not like you know it's not like the prime minister just closes his eyes and goes through the book of everybody in jail and just touches names and says okay these guys will be pardoned does that make sense So, yeah, no, he's the one who made the rules it's not as if somebody else it's not like Durga Devi made the rules and now Krishna has to follow them they're his rules in his own abode with his own associates he makes rules to be broken he makes rules for the pleasure of breaking them we also get pleasure from breaking rules and getting away with it don't we mm-hmm. yes we do so so krishna also does that you know in the spiritual world you don't need any rules of morality do you there's nobody immoral there you don't need codes of morality There's no lust there. You don't need to regulate people's lust because there isn't any. So why does he have it in the spiritual world that it looks like the gopis are married to someone else and he's meeting with them in the middle? Why does he do that? It's just fun. So he also sometimes does that. But generally, otherwise nobody will, will listen to him. Otherwise people will pick up the scriptures and they'll say, well, why should I follow this? I'll follow it and it won't work. Krishna will just come in and, you know, do something else. Right? He'll just come in and do what he wants anyway. So why bother? And people would lose faith in the scriptures and they wouldn't have any way of being elevated. So it's very, very unusual that thing he does. That's very unusual. Generally he sets things up so that there's some sometimes he tricks people like um, Vrikasura so Vrikasura did austerities and he pleased Lord Shiva and he got this benediction that anyone whose head he touched would crack and his intention was to kill Lord Shiva and take away Lord Shiva's wife Parvati he wanted to have the material energy herself as his wife and Lord Shiva was afraid so he was racing all over the place finally he came to the Zavakunta in this world And he took shelter of of Lord Vishnu, who then appeared as a devotee of Lord Shiva. He appeared as a little brahmachari, Shiva Bhakta. And he just tricked this demon. He says, oh, you're such a great person. You're getting your body tired by running all over the universe. Your body's very important to you. You better rest. the guy thought, yeah, my body's really important. Oh, you have such a great family. I know your father. I know, oh, you're a friend of my family. As soon as someone knows our family, then we trust them, isn't it? (laughs) If we figure that somebody's a member of our family or a member of our country or something, immediately we trust them. Oh, you know my family, this demon thought. So we trusted this little brahmanjari. And he says, why are you running? He says, well, I'm running because I'm trying to kill Lord Shiva. He said, well, wow, why are you doing that? Well, he gave me this benediction. Anyone whose head I touch would crack, and they'd die. And he said, well, why do you believe that? He said, you can't trust Lord Shiva. He hangs around with ghosts and hot dog ones, and he's not a trustworthy person. I think this is a false benediction, and you're wasting your time. And the demon started to have some doubt. And then he said, look, you know, if you want to find out if it's true or not, why don't you, you know, I, I'm, it's not true. I mean, just, sit, just try. Just, you know, touch your head, and you'll see that nothing will happen. And the guy goes, "Yeah, you know, good idea." (laughs) So sometimes Krishna does it like that. Mm -hmm. Various ways of dealing with things, but often what he does is he has the the demons diminish their their credits, or sometimes you know does that through the devotees like Naradmani. Anything else? I haven't heard that, but it could be. It could also be. Or there were these... The one that I was just talking about? Um, Vrikasura. Vrikasura. Yeah, he's uh, mentioned in the Bhagavatam. There's a a, a couple of demon brothers who got a benediction from Lord Brahma that the only way that they could die was if they killed each other because they were such good friends. And, you know, then it was really a problem. So Lord Brahma created this incredibly beautiful woman and sent her and they started fighting over her and killed each other. So that's, you know they have to, sometimes they do things like that. But yeah, they, they, the Lord tries to act and the Lord and his devotees try to act in such a way that people's respect for the shastra and the rules remains intact. People's respect for him remains intact. All right, so we're starting out. here. To Yodin's father, Dhritarashtra, who's the whole cause of this problem, he says Dharmakshetra, Kurukshetra, Samaveda, yutsavaha Mamaka, Pandavaschaiva, Kimakuravata, Sanjaya. This is the only verse in the whole Bhagavad Gita spoken by Dhritarashtra and he says what happened there. And it's important that he says Dharmakshetra, Kurukshetra, what happened at this holy place? Because he knew that his own sons were demons. He knew, and he figured that the holy place would favor the Pandavas. So he was a little worried about the whole situation. All right, and then we have Duryodhan, who's a very good politician, and he's assessing the whole situation. He goes to his military commander and guru, and he says, all right, these people are on our side, and these people on their side, and I've looked at everything, and I really think we have the political advantage and the military advantage. And from a material point of view, he was right. He had more divisions of soldiers, Bhishma was a more experienced general than Bhima. And often the materialistic person calculate that way, isn't it? They calculate for, by externals. And he thought, you know, no problem. So then they're getting ready to fight. And at the start of the fight, you know, there's some... They fought according to rules most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. And the rules were the fight started at a certain point every day and it ended at a certain point every day. In American history, the main turning point in the Revolutionary War when we Americans threw out the British, how did you guys get your independence? Was it just like a very slow, gradual, peaceful thing? How you got your independence from the United Kingdom? You didn't have a war, right? They're you guys don't know anything about your own history? <laughs> was, um, about the 1940s that Britain kind of stops some of the trade with us We kind of thought, okay, fine. It wasn't really... There was I no mean, official thing. No, our main problem is with the, um, uh, the Treaty of Waitangi and the Māori. That's that's the main... That was more of a problem. problem. That's more of a problem, yeah. The British was just kind of settled here and built all the way over there. So it was a very gradual thing. Just, yeah. sort even, of the, even the Governor General at the moment was just
1: more of a, um, a um, what do you call it, a decorative kind of function.
0: Uh huh. But you're not still officially part of the British Empire, are you?
1: We're still part of the Commonwealth. You're still part of the Commonwealth. Yeah. You're of the Commonwealth. Yeah, we're not a republic. You're
0: not a republic. Well, well, in terms of the. Um, so the you're the kind government. of like, like 40-year-old kids who still live at home with mommy a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, huh? Or, um, yeah, sort of. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> it's, just, it's just kind of a.
1: It's you, just, it's decorative.
0: I see. So it's just so mommy's just keeping a little a little eye on you still.
1: Oh, not even. Not even that. It's just, decorative, just decorative,
0: decorative stuff.
1: stuff
0: looks okay. Pretty. okay. All right. So you guys were really cultured in how you separated, whereas the Americans were really we were really uncultured, which by the way shows up even in the American mentality today. We were rebellious teenagers who you know had a major war, when we were only like thirteen and we man away from home. <laughs> so in the <laughs> that, that meant you see these different mentalities are there. That's why there's a very different mentality in America and in Canada, by the way. But anyway, one of the turning points in the Revolutionary War where we threw out those nasty Britishers was when uh, George Washington and his army, who were just a bunch of ragtags, not even professional soldiers, they attacked on Christmas. They attacked the British army. Actually, it was German mercenaries that were fighting for the British. But anyway, they attacked the British army on Christmas in a surprise attack while the, the Britons were celebrating and that was the turning point of the war so that's modern warfare right but in this battle it's not like that they all assemble together <coughs> and they announce okay now we're going to start fighting and then they announce now we're going to stop fighting and when they stop at the end of every day, they don't fight at night. One time, in this whole war, they did fight at night, but uh, they didn't fight at night. And at night, they could, you could visit the camp of the enemy, and you'd be received as a friend. <laughs> so the two camps would get they get they could get together in the evening and eat together and talk together. Now, of course, there was still enmity between them, but at least externally they'd receive each other as a friend and you weren't in any kind of danger if you went into the enemy's camp at night. So there was one time they fought at night and that was when one of Bhima's sons who was half Rakshasa, Gatokacha, the day that he entered the battle. So he was using demon methods on behalf of the Pandavas. And because of that, uh, the other side decided to use Rakshasa methods too and they fought on after dark, which is one of the methods of the demons. So the battle's about to begin, and the way they announce the beginning of the battles is they blow their conch shells. Right? And we have a conch shell here? Somebody, could somebody blow the conch shell, please? Yes, yeah, somebody blow the conch shell. Someone who's able to blow the conch shell. Please blow the conch shell. <laughs> <laughs> First, it was the bad guys who blew their conch shells and they uh, blew their conch shell very loudly. It said, like the sound of a lion, and then the good guys blew their conch shells, which are described as transcendental kong shells, <laughs> and when they blew their conch shells, which all have names, by the way, all their conch shells have names, a lot of their weapons have names, too, and a lot of their weapons are actually subtle personalities. Pretty nice, huh? Mm-hmm. So when the good guys blew their kung shells, then the bad guys' hearts were shattered. And this was one indication that the good guys would be victorious. Uh, we should also back up just a little bit and say that this whole story is being told to Duyodin's father, Dhritarashtra, by his secretary, Sanjaya. And Sanjaya is seeing this whole battle taking place from a distance through extrasensory perception, basically clairvoyance. He was given the ability of clairvoyance by Vyasadeva, and he was able to see all the events taking place. So all of this is being told through Sanjaya. All right. So they blew their conch shells, and they're ready to fight. And then Arjuna says to Krishna, who's his chariot driver, on text 21, Sena, yor uba yor majje. Sena is the army. Uba is both. Maje, middle. Sena yor uba yor please take me in the middle of both armies. Ratan with this cart. Ratan chuta. chuta means who never fails. And Krishna never fails to try to please his devotee. There's a very loving relationship going on here between Krishna and Arjuna. Generally, a chariot driver is a servant, and generally they're a lesser warrior than the charioteer. They're of a lesser status. And and Krishna, the Supreme Lord, is taking this status just to please his devotee. So I said, I want to see those present here. I want to see who's come. Of course, Arjuna already knew who was there and he already knew all the kings of the world almost all a couple weren't there for various reasons which is a long story but pretty much all the kings of the world were on one side or the other so I want to see who's here this is when it starts he especially wants to see the other side who are my enemies and then Krishna draws up the chariot and he says just see who's here and Prabhupada says that Krishna was saying oh you just want to see don't you want to fight and then Arjuna saw who we had to fight with now sometimes I don't know if any of you have experienced this but in my life sometimes the people who are seemingly acting as as my enemy who are really giving me a hard time in my life are family or friends has that ever happened to any of you Mm -hmm. that you have some real conflict in your life and the people who are causing you trouble are people who you care about. And sometimes you're divided. And I was in a situation once in the temple where there were people who were uh, very much criticizing me and my service and really causing a big problem. But these are people who'd been friends of mine for many years. And I decided I don't want to make a war in the community. I don't, I don't want to fight these people. That whatever I, whatever I could gain is not worth fighting with these people who've been my friends for so long. Have you ever felt that way? It's like, you know, is, is this really worth it? Do I really want to fight with my family members? Do I really want to fight with my friends? And I, I just stepped back and said, okay, fine. You know, whatever you guys want, you can have. I'm not, I'm not going to fight with you. So this is the way Arjuna started to feel. He looked and said, wait a minute. These are my family members. These people, they're my family. They've been my friends. I don't want to fight with them. He had a sense of compassion. And this is particularly in these verses here. He says, he became overwhelmed with compassion, seeing my friends and relatives present before me in such a fighting spirit. 28, I feel the limbs of my body quivering and my mouth drying up. My whole body is trembling. My hair is standing on end. My bogondiva is slipping from my hand. My skin is burning. So just imagine if in order to get something you wanted, you had to kill your family. You might feel pretty conflicted. it wasn't only his family, but uh, who was on that other side? All right, now he's going to give the argument of enjoyment. Do you ever feel like that? What's the use of doing this? It won't do me any good anyway. You ever have something like that? Something's hard to do and you think, what is the use? Even when I get this, I'll work so hard for it, I'll fight so hard for it and I'll get it and it won't do me any good. So that's his next argument is enjoyment. He says, I do not see how any good from killing my own kinsmen in this battle nor can I desire any subsequent victory, kingdom or happiness. He says, it's not worth it. My cost-benefit ratio is lousy. You know, I'm going to be killing these people that I care about, that I'm attached to, and I just, I don't want it. I don't want the victory. He says, what use to us or a kingdom, happiness, or even life itself, when all those for whom we may desire them are now arraigned in this battlefield. And prophet says, you know, if you have opulence, you want to show it to your friends, Right? What's the use of a new car if you can't show it off to your friends? Isn't it? Right? Are you ladies, what's the use of a new sorry if you have no friends to show it to? It's useless. A fancy house, you know, whatever. People get something. They want to put their diploma on the wall. They want to drive around in their car. You get something, you want to show it off to the people that you care about. And you want to enjoy it with the people you care about. You get a new car, you want to take your friends for a ride. What's the use of riding around by yourself? With nobody to show it off to. Useless. Right? What's the use of a nice house if you just get it by yourself? So he said, what's the use of getting a kingdom when I'll be killing the very people that I want to show it to, that I want to enjoy it with? And he says that I'm not prepared to fight with them even in exchange for the three worlds. So there's nothing. Right? And then he's making an argument in um, well, actually, in several of these verses, making enjoyment and also the argument of sin. He's saying sin will overcome us. How can we be happy by killing our own kinsmen? Now, Arjuna was very intelligent and he knew. That happiness comes from doing pious activities. Happiness does not come, if we're talking about material happiness, happiness does not come from having money, from having fame, from having beauty, if you're sinful. You won't get happiness. You'll get the externals, but not happiness. Do we see this in many modern people who have opulences? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the signs of being unhappy is taking intoxication. Do happy people need to take intoxication? Why do people take intoxication? They need some kind of artificial way of feeling happy, isn't it? It's a sign that you're miserable. Why do so many of these famous, rich, beautiful people, why are they taking so many drugs and alcohol? You know, Often they're very unhappy in their relationships. So happiness comes from following, because the more you're following piety, the closer you are to Krishna, basically, is how it works. And Krishna is the source of all happiness. And the more sinful you are, the further you're getting away from Krishna. So he's saying, we're not going to have any pleasure if the way we've gotten our kingdom was sinful. If you've stolen money to be happy, that money will not make you happy. You say, you know, this this isn't the right way for me to get a kingdom. And he's saying, these other people might be willing to be sinful, but we're not going to be sinful. And he's talking about specifically that it will destroy the family. And war often does that, doesn't it? The husbands, the fathers, the sons are killed. Uh, the women are then unprotected. And he's talking about that if the women are unprotected, we're going to have Varna Sankara. Uh, varna means uh, color or caste. And Varna Sankara specific Prabhupada Suresh talks about adultery. <coughs> And one reason Prabhupada talks about adultery was in this society, there were not unmarried mature women. So it was very, very rare, sometimes, but it was very rare to have illegitimate children in the sense of children born before a woman was married. It happened sometimes, like with Kunti, but that was unusual. But their idea of an illegitimate child was more a child born from adultery. So he's saying, Arjuna is saying, if, if the men are gone in society, then we're going to have children born from adulterous relationships. That, and those illegitimate children, Varnasankara literally means illegitimate children. Children for whom you cannot tell who's the father. Children who are not being brought up within a family situation. And he's saying that when you have this, the whole society falls apart. And even sociologists tell us it's true. The sociologists say that as soon as you get over 17% of children that are born not to their, you know, not to a married couple, then society starts to break down. And this is exactly what's happening in modern society, isn't it? So more and more children are now being born for people who never get married or out of married, or we have in America one half of children spend part of their time not living with both biological parents, divorce and remarriage and so forth and so on. And children in these situations are much more likely to just be criminals cause, I mean, this is statistics. It's just raw statistics. That children from these situations are far more likely to be a problem in society and to have their own personal problems. And by the way, that's much more likely for children who don't have a father than who don't have a mother. So children raised without a father are far more likely to have problems in their life. And this is what we're seeing. It's a practical thing of society. So Arjuna was very worried about this. You know, if we kill all these men, you are going to have all these unprotected women, and then we're going to have all these illegitimate children, and the social structure will break down. And he's giving all of the things that happen when the social structure breaks down, he says, if I'm responsible for that, I'm going to go to hell. So these are all the arguments that Arjuna's made, and they're all very good arguments. All of Arjuna's arguments are good arguments. Not one of them is a bad argument. Not, not one of them is, is a wrong argument either. They're all correct arguments. But he's not looking at the higher. There's sometimes lower and higher. He's not looking at, at something higher. That, yes, that's true, but these people are ruining the world. Uh, having these people in charge is causing more trouble, so therefore Krishna wanted them finished. And then Arjuna is feeling so extreme that he's saying, I'd better to be killed unarmed and unresisting, which for a soldier is just nothing worse than that. That's a terrible way to die. And then he sits on the chariot and says, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to do this. not going to go through with that. We ever feel like that? I'm just not, not going to do this. You know, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to do it. I've looked it over through logic and reason, and I'm just not doing it. It's not going to work out, and here's all my reasons, and that's it. <laughs> right? So now we come to Chapter 2. And Arjuna does something very intelligent in Chapter 2. First of all, Krishna just tries to talk to him like as a friend. He says, look, you know, this isn't really, you know, you're not like that. Come on. This isn't going to take you to the higher planets, and this isn't, this isn't who you are. You're a great fighter. You're a chastiser of the enemy. You know, get up and fight already. You know, what, what you might say to your friends here, to your friends going, oh, I can't do this. Now. I can't go out on book distribution anymore. I can't do it. It's too hard, you know, and I'm never going to go back to Godhead anyway. And nobody likes it. And everybody's just fried with me when I go out. And then you know, come on, Prabhu. What is this? You've been a book distributor for the last, you know, five years and you've always fixed up to vote. I don't expect this kind of thing from you. Come on, take your book bag and get out. (laughs) That's the first couple things that Krishna says. And then Arjuna says, wait a minute. He said, who's on this other side? He said, there's not just family, but there's Drona and Bhishma. So who's Drona? Drona is Arjuna's guru. And who's Bhishma? It was not literally his grandfather because Bhishma had no children. He was like his granduncle. But he, he acted as the grandfather. Um, Bhishma was a very interesting person. He never married. He never had children. But he took care of a lot of women and children. He got all the responsibility and none of the perks. So <laughs> he had, he had a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of widows and a lot of children whose fathers had died that he took care of. who didn't have fathers for whatever reason. So he was acting like the father and the grandfather to so many of the of the children of that dynasty so just imagine for a minute that Krishna himself okay Krishna himself walks up to you and says, "Please shoot your guru and your grandfather." okay How would you feel It could be pretty tough wouldn't it? Thankfully, we will not be asked to do that. And one of the reasons that this is happening here is this situation is so extreme. Krishna set up a situation here for Arjuna that's so extreme that none of us can look at our surrenders and say, well, you know, Arjuna didn't have it as bad as I did. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs>
0: you know, yeah, you know, but what was Arjuna's problem? I mean, mine is a lot worse. So I don't think any of us have a duty that's more difficult than that. Who would kill their own spiritual master? And Prabhupada says this in the purport. He said that indirectly Arjuna is asking Krishna, Would you kill Sandhipani Muni? Would you kill Ugrasena? What are you asking me to do? He said, Better to be a beggar. Right? And there's no good choice. Being killed by them is a bad choice. Killing them is a bad choice. And then Arjuna does an intelligent thing. What does he do? He surrenders. He becomes Krishna's disciple. Shishya teham. I become your shishya. I'm now your disciple. So. And then he says, "I don't. I, there's nothing I could do. I'm feeling so much grief that even if I was the king of heaven, I wouldn't feel better." So our problems in this world are so severe that even getting the kingdom of heaven wouldn't solve them. So that's what he said. All right, now. Krishna starts giving his answers to Arjuna's questions. And he's giving us, this first six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is explaining us to us how to work. He's talking about who are we and how do we work. In the middle six chapters, which we'll go over tomorrow morning, he's talking about himself, who he is. And in the last six chapters, he talks about what is the nature of the world. Now those are not absolute demarcations. But he starts talking about who are we. So first he's dealing with Arjuna's argument of compassion. I don't want to kill these people. They're my friends. They're my relatives. I love them. I care about them. You know, and he's saying, wait a minute. That's not what's really going on here. We're the soul, and you can never hurt a soul. You know, we are, if you think about this for a minute, we, we are, all of us, are spiritual beings, mm-hmm. and we're actually imprisoned in these bodies. You know, first we have the mental prison, which restricts us to some extent, and then we have this physical prison. Which it's, it's really prison. And people who have even out, brief out-of-body experiences almost always say how wonderful it was to get out of their body.
1: <laughs>
0: how they felt, you know, freedom and happiness, not even from anything spiritual, just from getting out of the body. Prabhupada says, all, you know, pretty much all of our distress is due to the body. He says it's all due to the mind also. So is saying, wait a minute, you know, you, the, your, your compassion is, is not reasonable. All these relationships are based on the body. And no one is their body. No one can be hurt by any means. So he's giving this answer from 210 up through 230. He's talking about there's going to be happiness and distress on the basis of this body and one must tolerate it a very interesting verse in text 16, that whatever is temporary really has no ultimate factual existence. It's only the spiritual things that really exist in an ultimate sense. And Krishna even gives some materialistic arguments. He said, you know, if you don't accept this, if you think there's no soul, then what does it matter if just bodies are dying? Which is one of our arguments for the um, evolutionists, if we're really just a bag of chemicals, then what do you care? What does it matter? Which, of course, is how they think, which is why they think things like abortion are fine. And why they're starting to think that euthanasia is fine? Because we're just bag of chemicals. I mean, what is the big deal if I throw the sandbag in the trash? Is anybody going to cry? I don't think so. So if that's all we are, you know, if we're just a bunch of primordial soup, then what does it matter? What does anything really matter? So Krishna's also giving that argument, he said, even if you don't believe me. I then uh, starting in text 31, he starts to talk about enjoyment. And here it's interesting that Krishna is giving material arguments, which we also sometimes do. Do we sometimes give people material arguments why they should be a vegetarian? Or why they should not take intoxication? We don't only give spiritual arguments. So Krishna's giving here some material arguments. He says, because Arjuna did. Arjuna was saying, I won't have any happiness. And Krishna said, no, the way you get happiness is by doing your duty. The way you get happiness is by being righteous. The way you get happiness is by fighting a righteous war where either you win the kingdom or you go to heaven. Okay. I said some very interesting things that for... For persons who have been honored, dishonor is worse than death. And in that section, on text 33, that section goes up to 38, On text 33, he says, If, however, you do not perform your religious duty of fighting, then you will certainly incur sins for neglecting your duty. Because remember, Arjuna said, It's sinful to kill my relatives. And Krishna says, No, it's sinful to give up your duty. That's what's sinful. Okay. Then Krishna ends this section by saying, all right, now I've described, to you things to you, I've described things to you in an analytical way. Now let's talk about how to work. What do you do? How do you work in such a way that you don't become entangled, that you don't have all these problems? Now, this is something that we in the Krishna consciousness movement are going to confront individually over and over and over and over and over, and over and over again. As you progress in your chanting of Hare Krishna, one thing that will happen is that you'll start to see what your motives are. Have any of you started to experience this? That you've started to see that what motivates you is not as pretty as you think? Have you, if, you, if you haven't, then you need to chant more because that's one of the things that you'll see as you chant. And materialistic people think, I sometimes do or say something wrong, but I've got a good heart. And what we find out as we're chanting is that I may sometimes do good things, but my motives sink. And as you go on chanting, you will see that more and more and more and more and more. That is a very good sign. So that's what Arjuna saw, basically. He saw my, my reasons for doing this battle are wrong. Um, I want to enjoy the kingdom. I want to, you know, I want to have it, and how can I... How can I do these things for that purpose? And our tendency when we see that our motives are wrong is what? What do we tend to do? We want to stop what? We want to stop doing it. Exactly. We want to stop the behavior. So if you're going out and distributing books... And one day you realize, oh, the, reason, the real reason I'm distributing books is not to please my Guru Maharaj. It's not to please Krishna. It's not to help these conditioned souls. I'm doing it because that way I get a place to sleep and some food to eat. Or I'm doing it because that way everybody glorifies me and I get a big score or, you know, whatever. And you see that. And the tendency is then to think, oh, well, then I should stop distributing books. That's exactly what Arjuna did, isn't it? He said, "My motives are wrong. I won't fight." Okay. So Krishna is going to answer this. He's going to say, "How can you act so that you're free from the bondage of works?" So he's talking about acting in a spirit of sacrifice. First, he starts giving Arjuna some, you know, idea of the goal. He said, "If you do this, there's no loss or diminution. You should be resolute in purpose." Don't be interested in the lesser things, in just the the Vedas, in sense enjoyment. Give up your attachment. He's talking, give change your consciousness. Give up your attachment to your own enjoyment. You know, all these arguments you're making, Arjuna, are based on the platform of fruit of activities in the Vedas. Forget that. That's working on a lower platform. Let's come to something higher. Go to a big reservoir of water that can fulfill all of your purposes. This, this area in which you're arguing is like a small well. Right? Can we make arguments on different levels? So he's saying, Arjuna, your arguments are on a lower level. You're not looking at higher things. Then he says, no, you're not doing this for yourself. Very famous verse 47. You're not, this is not for your own self do your duty without caring what happens you're not doing this duty to enjoy the kingdom you're doing it just as Jagya and then Krishna says something in 49 that really bewilders Arjuna he says uh, "Duraina, put it a long distance avaram abominable karma activity don't do anything nasty and of course Arjuna is still thinking that the war is nasty so it's like huh why are you telling me to put nasty activities far away so he will he will ask a question about this. And Krishna keeps talking about Buddha yoga. Do the yoga of intelligence. Do the yoga of intelligence, which uh, Prabhupada translates always as devotional service. Actually, Krishna does, in Sanskrit, Krishna is not talking about devotion. He doesn't reveal till later on in the Bhagavad Gita that he's talking about devotional service. But what Srila Prabhupada did was take that and say, this is what Krishna is actually talking about over here. Mm-hmm. All right. He's all talking about giving up sense gratification, not being disturbed by anything, having control over your mind. This whole section of the first ch- six chapters are a lot about controlling your mind, control your senses. This is not for the satisfaction of your mind. It's not for the satisfaction of your senses. Right? And then this very, uh, very important section in 62 and 63, how by contemplating things, one gradually becomes attached to them. And falls down into the world. Okay, so here Krishna is going to what's real happiness. Before he was talking about enjoyment materially, right? First, he was giving some material instructions, and then in sixty six, he says, "One who's not connected with the supreme can have neither transcendental intelligence nor a steady mind, without which there's there's no possibility of peace." and how can there be any happiness without peace so he's saying if you really want happiness then you have to be acting on a platform of sense control whose senses are restrained from their objects is certainly of steady intelligence and Krishna's giving some little hint that this kind of work is very different in 69 he's saying it may appear two people are fighting on the battlefield and they're both doing the same thing but it's day and night He's saying, don't change your activities. Change your consciousness. Change the motive. If you see the motive's wrong, you don't change the behavior. You change the motive. Why do we want to change the behavior and not the motive? It's a lot easier, isn't it? Does that solve the problem? No, then you'll just do another behavior from the bad motive, won't you? Right. Then just keep changing the behaviors. Uh, no, change the motive. Okay. And then two different, in two different circumstances, Jesus also says this. He says two people are working in the field. One stays, one is taken. And some of the Christians think that means one day half the people in the world are just going to float up into the sky in the rapture. But it's basically the same thing that Krishna is talking about here. That it's day and night. Two people are doing the same thing, but for one it's day and one it's night. A very important verse here in text 70. Just like rivers flowing into the ocean. There's a place in Hawaii, near where where my son lives, where you see a river flowing into the ocean. And it's so, I mean, you just see the river flowing, you know, the the water goes this way, then the water goes this way, the water goes this way, the water goes this way, the water goes this way. But of course the river is flowing into the ocean. But all the rivers are flowing to the ocean, and the ocean is not overflowing. So in this way, desires may come, desires will come. Please do not think the desires are going to stop coming. And the desires will still come but you won't you, you won't you won't touch them and as you advance you stay away from them sooner and sooner <laughs> if you know what I'm saying so as we're neophys first we're overwhelmed by the desire and then we're like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> after a while you, you recognize it from further and further away you follow? it's not that it doesn't walk past but people in bhava, they see the naked form of their... They see actually what their desires are. So as soon as it's all the way... In, oh, yeah, I know that guy. No, thank you. you know, whereas we don't remember who they are until they're sitting on our head. It's like, oh. I just lost it for the last three days. Okay, and Krishna ends there with saying that you can go back to Godhead. All right, now he starts getting into more details in Chapter 3 because Arjuna says, I don't understand what you're talking about because Krishna said give up all abominable actions. And Arjuna's like, what are you talking about? You told me give up abominable actions. You told me to do booty yoga. And booty yoga to him means I stop fighting and I sit down and meditate. So You're telling me do this intelligence yoga and then you're telling me to fight. Huh? Right? What are you talking about? So Krishna says, all right, yeah, there's a way to realize me just by uh, knowledge and there's a way to realize me by action, but really they lead to the same thing. And it's better to work because he said, you know, you're not going to make it just by stopping work. Like we said, you stop the behavior, what will you do? Do some other behavior.'" So he says, just stopping work is not going to solve your problem. And he gives many examples, he said. You don't attain perfection. He said, you're gonna be forced to act helplessly. If you stop your behavior, but you still want sense enjoyment, you're just pretending. It doesn't, will it last? No, Krishna's saying it's not gonna last. He said, you'll do it anyway. He said, but a sincere person who's doing karma yoga is much better. And then Krishna's going into a whole explanation of sacrifice. Here he's talking about what's called Sakarma karma yoga where you want material enjoyment, but you're still working as a sacrifice. And he gives examples. He gives examples of... He said, how will working as a sacrifice bring you enjoyment? Well, the demigods will be happy with you. They'll give you rain. You'll get prosperity. He gives the example of food. That if you offer your food and sacrifice everyone experiences and we offer our food to taste better, doesn't it? So even if you're thinking about material enjoyment, Krishna's giving these examples. There's a verse Prabhupada which would speak a lot about uh, that all living entities subsist in, in food grains. And then you might say, well, suppose you're, you're already detached. Why work? Arjuna might say, I'm already detached. And Krishna says, yes, for those people there is no duty. You don't have to do any duty in the world if you're self-realized, but such people should do a duty. Why? As a good example. A good example. And then Krishna uses himself. And here Krishna is answering the question of, in text 24, Krishna's answering Arjuna's question of creating unwanted population. He said, if I didn't do my duty, I'd create unwanted population. Now, how can we understand that? Unwanted population comes primarily from people not doing their duty. That's where illegitimate children, unwanted children, come from. As soon as Krishna doesn't do his duty or Arjuna doesn't do his duty, some man will say, Why do I have to maintain this woman and her children? Why do I have to have only relations with the woman I'm married to? I'll just do whatever. Arjuna did whatever he wanted. You know, the battle was uncomfortable, so he walked away. So, you know, it's uncomfortable living with my husband or wife. I'll just walk away too. And then, therefore, you have unwanted children. So the main way you have wanted children is by people being willing to do their duty. So that that was Krishna's answer to that. And then Krishna says that, yeah, you set an example even for ignorant persons. And he said, anyway, you're not really doing anything. You think you're doing something. This is all done by nature. You do it in the spirit of sacrifice with that knowledge. Now, Krishna's hinting at that here. He's going to get into that a lot more later. But he's hinting, you do your duty with knowledge. And he said, ignorant people think they're doing it, but really, you're not doing anything. So have the desire. You're not doing anything anyway. All that's happening is desire. Desire. So desire to please me, desire to work as a sacrifice. And then Krishna gives, uh, in text 31 through 33, he gives some verses that are repeated in 1858 to 60. He says, if you do your duties, you'll become free from bondage of work. If out of envy you disregard them, you'll lose everything. And that you have to act according to your own nature anyway. You're going to act anyway, you're going to behave anyway, do it for me. And that way you'll be happy, and if you don't, you will suffer. And he's saying, don't, don't get into these lower things. Don't get into just pious, regulated enjoyment. Come to transcendental life. And then Arjuna's thinking, well, this is kind of hard. Is this kind of hard to do this? This is easy, right? Piece cake to do this? Arjuna says, well, this is sometimes hard. He says, why, why am I sometimes forced to do the wrong thing? You ever wondered that? You want to do the right thing, you plan to do the right thing, and you don't. So Arjuna says, what is that? And Krishna says, (sighs) Now that question is at the bottom of page 203, and I read this when I was in uni, and I was like, what's the answer? (laughs) It's lust only. Ah. (laughs) So the reason we have trouble doing this is our own desire to enjoy the world. And Krishna says that this lust, like you have to know where your enemy is, this lust is in the senses, the mind, and intelligence, but the intelligence is higher. The soul is higher, and you can control this with superior energy. Use the, this is one of many ways Krishna is going to give us to do this. He's going to say, start with controlling your senses and slay this destroyer of lust and self-realization because the senses can be controlled by the mind, which can be controlled by the intelligence. All right. Now Krishna's told Arjuna to work with knowledge, and now he's going to give in more detail some of this knowledge. First of all, he's going to start off by telling Arjuna that this knowledge is bona fide. So just like, of course, you didn't do that here, but generally, we introduce unknown speakers, and when we introduce unknown speakers, we tell everybody how qualified they are. Why do we do that? Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes in some places I violated etiquette and introduced myself. Because I know that if people don't respect you when you're speaking, it will take them at least 20 minutes before they decide that they're going to listen to. At least. You take who is this person? Why should I listen to them? What do they know? Right? You first present your credentials. So Krishna's here presenting his credentials. I'm going to tell you how to work with knowledge. And uh, by the way, uh, I'm God. (laughs) And this knowledge that I'm teaching you is eternal. You know, I taught it to the sun god millions of years ago. Right? I've been teaching it to saintly kings. And Arjuna said, uh, I'm not quite sure if I believe that because you're only about 100 years old and the sun god, this all happened millions of years ago and, you know, of course Arjuna does actually believe it but the question may arise somebody may read this and say, well, what is that? And Krishna's, you could just see him laughing and saying, hey Arjuna, you know, you were there too
1: Uh,
0: but because you've changed your body, you forget and I remember I would really suggest that you read the purport to text 5 this is very important the difference between Krishna and even a liberated living entity. Uh, Sometimes devotees mistakenly think that pure devotees, liberated devotees, or their spiritual master is exactly like God. And that's not the case. Krishna remembers everything and even a great liberated jiva does not. Please don't expect that your spiritual master knows all the thoughts in your heart and knows everything in the past, present, and future and is omniscient and omnipotent. You know, that if, if you have those sort of expectations, then when you find out that that's not true, then you may lose faith. And we've seen this happen, that people, they think their guru is God. And then when they find out that their guru is not God, then they reject their guru. But it was a false expectation. And this is a very, very nice purport where Prabhupada explains the difference between even a great, liberated, pure soul like Arjuna and the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So we do not say that no matter how great you become, that you become equal to God. Okay? So please, please, please keep that in mind. Alright? Can't be mad at somebody for not fulfilling your false expectations. <laughs> you didn't fulfill my false expectations. Okay. So then Krishna is saying <laughs> you must not be bona fide. You don't do what you never said you would do anyway. So here Krishna's explaining that he's unborn, right, that his body never changes. And it says here that anybody who understands this about him, Krishna explains for quite some verses, that anyone who understands this truth about him, anyone who understands his nature becomes free. So now Krishna's established his credentials and the credentials of the, and he says anyone who's followed the science in the past, this is also an important text, text 10, because you may say, Arjuna may say, All right, well, how do I know this thing you're teaching me is going to work? So, Krishna's saying, I'm the Supreme Lord. This is eternal knowledge. And other people have also followed it and it worked for them. That's pretty important, isn't it? Isn't that whenever they sell product or service, there's always testimonials? I used it and it worked for me. Right? It can work for you too. So, Krishna's saying that here. He says, uh, "Being free from this is text ten. Being free from attachment, fear, and anger. Being fully absorbed in Me and taking refuge in Me. Many, many persons in the past became purified by knowledge of Me, Bahavo. and thus they all attained transcendental love for Me." And so this is something that's very important that we do want to see that the process works, and we want to see that the process works for people that we can relate to, like Loka and I were speaking about this. That when you're preaching, you need to have people who look like the people you're preaching to. You understand? You know, if you want young people to come, there has to be some young people that it works for. If everybody's in their 70s, the young people probably won't come. They'll say, Well, it works for 70 year olds, it's not going to work for me. In the beginning of the movement, we had the problem we could never bring in any old people. We were all young. You know, now we have more of a. Now we have much more of a ranges of ages and cultures and backgrounds in our movement, but it didn't start out that way. So you want to see that there's people like you. Oh, I know this guy. Yeah. He could be my next-door neighbor. I grew up with him, whatever, and he's becoming a transcendentally enlivened personality by chanting Hare Krishna. Wow. So Krishna's giving that evidence. And then uh, Krishna's saying, okay, this is the supreme thing but some people take lesser forms of it. I reward everyone as they surrender. He said, but really most of those people who don't want the supreme thing, most of them go to the demigods. Most of them don't even come to me. And for people who are not ready for full surrender, I have created Varnashram. And I've created Varnashram not because I'm attached to it, but to help people come to a gradual point of where they're willing to surrender to me. And again, in text 15, he's saying that all the liberated souls in ancient times acted with this understanding. Other people have done it, and they have become successful. And then he tries to make Arjuna feel a little better before he called him a fool. And now he says even the intelligent people are bewildered about what's action and what's inaction. You know, it's okay that you become a little bewildered. So now I'm going to explain to you the difference. And he said, you know, sometimes what looks like action is really inaction, and sometimes what looks like inaction is really action. Eh? You have to be able to see the real quality of something, even though you're doing so many things. He said, if you don't want to be affected by sin, you act with mind and intelligence perfectly controlled, giving up a sense of proprietorship. And then you attain not only happiness in this life, but the spiritual kingdom. Then Krishna goes through a whole bunch of different ways that people can sacrifice. How can one do their work in the mood of sacrifice? He gives a whole bunch of different examples. And he ends with saying, the best sacrifice is where you're sacrificing in knowledge where you know what you're doing. You might say, well, which one do I do? How do I do it? And then Krishna says, just... We do what? How are you going to find out what sacrifice to do for you? Approach a spiritualist." So... If you want to find out what kind of sacrifice to do, how to do it, for your particular, your time and place, you know, otherwise you read this, well, I'm supposed to have sacrifice the ingoing breath into the outgoing, And maybe I should do But no, you approach a spiritual master, right? And the spiritual master will tell you, at this time, the spiritual master will tell you, the jagya you do is? What is our spiritual master telling us to do now? What jagya? Sankirtan. Sankirtan. And he says, even if you're the most sinful of all sinners... If you take up this process, you will pass over all obstacles. You will cross the ocean of miseries. He says, As blazing fire turns firewood to ashes, this is a very, very nice verse, text 37, The fire of knowledge burns to ashes, all reaction to material activities. Because you start the fire in wood and the fire burns up the very wood. You make a sacrifice out of your activities and then the materialistic nature of your activities is finished. And text 38 is a beautiful, beautiful verse. And then again, Krishna says, you know, if you doubt this, it, things are not going to work for you. Please believe what I'm saying. Don't, don't be doubtful. Don't doubtful. He said, that take, the, take the weapon of knowledge and slash all of these doubts. And then, of course, Arjuna had said in these last two verses, he says, um, okay. text 41 and 42 yoga sannyasta karmanam. sounds like do the yoga of taking sanyas from all work jnana and take up jnana so again it sounds like Krishna is saying don't do any work and just take up knowledge so then Arjuna asked again he said wait a minute you asked me Sanyas karma you asked me to give up work and then you're telling me to work and help so krishna now sort of repeats chapter three but he's incorporated chapter four into chapter three and is giving it again so chapter three he said work is a sacrifice with knowledge chapter four he gave the knowledge with which to work now chapter five he's saying okay here's how you work in knowledge and he's saying the body is active, same thing that he said before, right? Remember, before he said it's not you that's doing anything? So here he's more specific. You're eating, you're sleeping, you're standing, you're evacuating, but you're not doing anything. It's just the body, it's just the modes of material nature. And actually, all souls are all equal. Have this. This is the kind of vision to have while you're working. Vijay Samphane Brahmi Gobani Hastani. Sunni Chaivaswapaketa. Pandita samadarshana. He said, just giving up activities is not going to make you happy. Instead, do activities as devotion with detachment. And Krishna speaks a lot about having inner happiness, finding your happiness within. Not finding your happiness from what you're doing, but finding your happiness from who you are. Not, I'm going to be happy if I get a kingdom. I'm going to be happy if I get this. I'm going to be happy if I'm in love with Krishna and I'm dedicating everything to Krishna. There's a lot of really wonderful verses here about finding happiness within and finding real peace within. And then Krishna ends this detachment, equal vision, happiness within. And the end of this in 27 and 28 he starts talking about meditative yoga. Well, how do you do this? How am I going to do this? Well, how specifically do I do it? Shutting out all external sense objects, keeping the eyes and visions concentrated between the two eyebrows. What chakra is that? You guys know what chakra that is? The agya chakra, good. Suspending the inward and outward breaths within the nostrils. Controlling the mind, senses, and intelligence, the transcendentalist, aiming at liberation becomes free from desire, fear, and anger. And then Krishna speaks wonderful verse 529, which we don't have time to go over now, about how he's the enjoyer, the proprietor, and the friend. And uh, Prabhupada has the gopis say this verse to Krishna when when they come to him in the forest and he tells them to go home. And they say, No, Krishna, you're our enjoyer. You're our proprietor. You own us. And you're our best friend. We're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. We're going to hang out with you. So now in chapter 6, Krishna goes into much more detail about text 27, 28. Right? And he starts describing the whole process of jnana yoga. In the beginning, he says, you know, there's two levels. It says in text 4 that a person is elevated in yoga... No, it's not text four. Sorry, text three. A neophyte, work is the means, and for one who's elevated, giving up material activities is the means. So for the beginner, you say, okay, do this work and do it for Krishna. For the advanced person, all of their activities merge into transcendence. You're no longer just taking something that's ordinary material and dovetailing it, but everything becomes transcendental, which is, we skipped going over those verses. Oh, well. And then Krishna's talking a lot about controlling the mind, that that's the purpose of yoga. He describes this yogic process in great detail as controlling the mind and the senses. And then what does Arjuna ask? What's Arjuna's, what does Arjuna say after this whole description of this jnana yoga and astanga yoga? Arjuna says, What? My, I can't do it. Krishna, if that's the way you're going to tell me to fight, which is kind of bewildering, uh, You know, Krishna's telling Arjuna to fight, and then he's telling them to go sit on kusha grass and focus on the Agya chakra.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Arjuna says, I, I can't do that. And then what's the question Arjuna asks? He says, I can't do it. Krishna, what happens to who fails what happens to someone who fails sorry Krishna that's too hard I I can't do that he's trying to be a good disciple so he's thinking okay I'll try to do it but I don't think I'll make it suppose I fail and he says if I fail what will happen what's his doubt yeah he said I won't have anything Says if I fail, you know, I'll have given up my material life. I'll join the Hare Krishna movement. When I'm 19, I'll give up illicit sex, I'll give up intoxication. How I'll get to be forty five. I'll have lost all my opportunities for illicit sex and intoxication. (laughs) And I still won't have love of God. I won't have either. I won't have love of God and I won't have, you know, I'll have missed all the movies. <laughs> I'll go back out into the world and I won't know what anybody's talking about anymore because I haven't seen all the movies. None of the girls will be interested in me anymore. And I'll be old ugly. nuddly. I'll be a ribbon cloud. So that was Arjuna's doubt. He said, I'll take it up. I'll fail. It's too hard. And I'll have nothing. And Krishna says, no, don't worry. He said, whatever you have, you will always keep. He said, even if you really blow it, and you, at the end of your life you have failed, uh, you will get a good birth. You'll get a wonderful birth in your next life. And everything will be one, Don't," He said, you'll get even materially. You'll go to the heavenly planet, so you'll take birth in a very good family. He said, you'll keep everything spiritual that you've achieved, and you'll also have all material benedictions. Don't worry, even, if you, even failure is good. What to speak of success. And he said, No matter what you do, the best thing to do is yoga. He said, It's better than anything else. You will get better results from yoga than from just ordinary work or from just cultivating knowledge. The best thing is yoga. And the best yogi is somebody who's in love with me. So that's where we end. Arjuna still doesn't really quite know how to do this.
1: <laughs>
0: right? And we're going to be going on tomorrow morning to Krishna is going to go in depth with the knowledge he's touched on in chapter 4. In chapter 4 he's touched on on the supreme lord and you work in knowledge of me as a sacrifice to me, but he hasn't explained himself in detail. So in this middle six chapters, Krishna is going to explain his nature in detail. This is what's coming up tomorrow morning, a little preview of coming attractions. He's going to explain himself in detail, and he's going to go into much more depth about how you meditate on him while you're doing activities. And then the last sixth chapter, he's going to go into detail of what is the nature of the world and how do activities act within the world so that by the time we come to the end, Arjuna really does know how to change his consciousness and how to act in the world for Krishna 's pleasure, and how to become part of Krishna 's really fun time on this battlefield, and how to be experiencing transcendental bliss, no matter which way the battle goes, no matter who wins, no matter who loses, uh, just as being a fun part of Krishna's pastimes and pleasing the Lord. So I've actually I actually went past two minutes past 9:15. I thought I wouldn't even get to like 8:45. I did spend a lot of time on setting the scene for the wonder, which I hadn't decided I was going to do. So we don't have any time for questions now. I'm sorry. You can all shoot me later
1: about that, and
0: I'll try to do better next time. Was this helpful? Again, what I do recommend that you do is take take the time, go through at least the verses, and. What well, we get, well, we don't have any time like, for a general question session. On this. No. no, i was thinking, like after I finish the whole thing, but we wouldn't have any time for that because that's Monday morning and everybody has to get out. Right, everybody work, yeah. Are we going to be able to do Monday's thing a little earlier so that people can get to work? Is that possible? I guess there's no way Where's to do that. that? How many How many of you have to have to work on Monday morning? And what What time do you have to go to work? Nine thirty.
1: Nine thirty. And you? Uh,
0: Eight thirty. You? Eight forty
1: five. And you have to eat, of course.
0: So maybe we'll work out on Monday. Could we shift things slightly on Monday, maybe? What we, you and I can talk about it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Hallelujah, Sister Leopold. Wellington devotees. Key. J.